people want to be transformed. How do I know? Just watch any commercial, right? Hi, I'm Marie. I lost 50 pounds on Nutrisystem. <laughs> right? Or, or how about the guy that hugs the pillow? My pillow will change your life. I make it right here in Minnesota. And it was like, everything changes your life. And now we got Giza sheets. You ever heard that one, right? It's a cotton that's only found in one place in the world in that little fertile crescent uh, between Egypt and, and uh, Palestine and all that kind of stuff. And so everybody wants to be transformed. And, uh, and, uh, and guess what? That God is in that business. But you know what? In order to become transformed, you got to be willing to do whatever it takes to get there. It's not like God becomes an addition to your already full life and that uh, somebody's calling me. How do, how do I stop this? There we go. I hit reject. I hope he doesn't feel rejection right now. Does he, does he feel rejection? What's that? Yeah, right. It's, it's actually our nephew that called us from Philadelphia. But, but anyway, it, I felt terrible to hit reject when he called me. He's like, I reject you. It's like... I love the guy. He's like, anyway. So, but anyway, so it's all about transformation. And we, we got to get past wanting makeovers, you know, and, and going for radical, radical transformation. And, and here's the poem that, that came to mind that I haven't used in probably 30, 35 years. He said this. He said, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Just so you know, anybody that has that approach or a similar approach to their desire for a makeover or a transformation, you're not going to get it that way. It's like all in or all out. There's, there's no possible, you know, we know what Jesus thinks about lukewarm, right? Yeah. Just look at Revelation chapter 3, right? He said, I'll spew you out of my mouth, right? And uh, so we're talking about before and after. So I thought I'd have a little bit of fun up front uh, and show you some before and after. First of all, starting with yours truly, all right? Here we go. 50 years ago. That's what I'm talking about, man. I know what you're thinking. What the heck happened to you? (laughs) Before and after. I don't know what I was thinking. That's just that's just like two months. This picture on the left is two months before I got married. And uh, you know, I'm sitting there. I almost got that look like, what you looking at? It's like. And then my precious bride and I, we started our uh, marital bliss journey 50 years ago this coming July the 12th. And, uh, yeah! Give it up. If you were uh, there at, at Lifeway the last time I preached, um, I mentioned in my sermon when I was talking about the cross and, and I've decided to follow Jesus, I said, you know, someone asked her the other day, you know, in 50 years of marriage, you never once thought about divorce. She said, never once, murder several times. <laughs> So, so I, I don't know what's worse, divorce or murder. I mean, at least a murder, you get out in 20 years. You know, but, 
But anyway, here, here's our <laughs> wedding dance, our bridal dance on July the 12th, 1969. Oh, oh. I hope there was no guys doing oh. It sounds nice code for the girls, but you know. And of course, here we are today. You know, the, this, act, this picture was actually taken when we. <laughs> is that a sympathy all? It's like, oh, you poor thing. I just ran over a puppy. Like, <laughs> uh, but, you know, before and after, right? That, that, now, by the way, what did we have to do uh, to have that, if you would dare call it a transformation? It's not really a transformation. It's an, it's an evolution. Some might argue a degeneration, you know, but just not die. You know, when you get from one to the other. But we're talking about something that happens on the inside. One of my favorite passages is found in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, where it says, when someone becomes a Christian, he becomes a brand new person inside. He is not the same anymore. A new life has begun. So rather than showing you before and after pictures of me when I was 18 or uh, my bride and I 50 years ago, let me... You know, God has several examples in uh, nature that just kind of puts an exclamation point to the end of the word transformation. And one of them is an ugly little caterpillar that eventually turns out to be this. When it says you are a new person inside, in the Greek, the Koine Greek of the New Testament, the word literally means a new species of being that never before existed. So when that, when that uh, caterpillar uh, goes inside of that cocoon, and I think it's called a chrysalis, and when it comes out several weeks later, there isn't anything similar whatsoever. It's not the same length, the same weight, has fewer legs, has more beauty, it has wings, it can fly. It is a new species of being that never before existed. And so that's what God has in mind for you, and that's what he has in mind for me. Now, we may look similar on the outside, but on the inside, as the scripture said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we, we are totally brand new inside. So let's look at Saul or Paul. You all do, knew that he was once called Saul, Saul of Tarsus. He was this big religious dude. And then he became Paul. Now, you know what the interesting thing? Names are significant in the Bible. You know, when, when I was named Stephen John Sable when I was born uh, 68 uh, soon to be 69 years ago, uh, my name Stephen came from my grandmother's brother. So I had an uncle Stephen, right? And my grandfather Sable's name was John, so I got him for my middle name. So there was not a lot of significance of saying, what, you know, what do we think of when we see this little child, like Bubba or? No, it was like, you know, it's named Stephen and John, right? But back in Bible times, names carried significance and meaning, either something of the characteristics of the child or aspirations that the parents had for the child, right? So when Paul was born, his mom and dad named him borrowed or asked for. Now, let me tell you what that means. That may not mean much, but it literally means like the world, uh, the, you know, God's gift to the world, right? You know, it, you, you girls have probably dated a guy that said he thinks he's God's gift to women, you know? Well, Paul had that going on for him. That was his name, right? And, and then you realize that when you unwrap the package, <laughs> what was inside that gift, right? 
Paul, however, so, so Saul starts out with this name that kind of con- has a connotation of being this awesome big dude that kind of overshadows everybody and, 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 and significance is kind of oozing out of his pores. When God gets a hold of him and gives him a new name, he calls him Paul, which means tiny, <laughs> diminished. Here's how he started. So we're going to do before and after. He had a perfect birth. Philippians chapter 3, verse 5 said he was circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. So he had a perfect birth. He had it all going on. He came from the right tribe, from the right family, from the right (laughs) nation. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Right? It's like, you know, some guys are described as a man's man. I don't know what that means. Of course, in this day and culture, it could mean all kinds of things, right? (laughs) Number two, a perfect life. Now, we understand perfect, you know, oh, Mr. Perfect. But he literally, when it came to the way the world measured things, he had a perfect life. It said in, in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, as touching the law of Pharisee, touching righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. Bam. Thank you. I got it done, right? I hit the ball out of the park. I, am, I, I, I dotted all the I's, crossed all the T's, and when it came to the law, I was blameless. Uh, And by the way, in Philippians, Paul wrote that book, so he's actually describing what he used to be proud of, what he used to brag about. And and what I'm giving you, if I had a marker board, I would have a a, a plus column and a loss column. And on the plus column, he would place this at one point until he met Christ, and we'll come back to that in a moment. He had the best teacher. He was tutored under a guy in Acts chapter 22 and 3. We're told his name is Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was this huge Jewish rabbi. And I don't mean his size, but he was just powerfully important. He was just famous. Like, and, and all the aspiring Pharisees, members of the Sanhedrin, all those kind of people, they would line up to get into his classes in his school because he was there. He was the cat's meow, right? And Paul said, I was taught by this guy. I was mentored by the number one guy. He was a Roman citizen, if that wasn't enough. Here's a Jew. He was, how did he become a Roman citizen? He was a Jew. Well, he was born in a city called Tarsus. Tarsus was a megatropolis and kind of like a hub for commerce and culture in all of that part of the world. And because it was so favored by the Romans who are now occupying and dominating all the world, they decided anybody that was born in Tarsus, regardless of their upbringing and genealogy, was now able to be a Roman citizen. He persecuted the church. And he was bragging about this. He had that in the plus column. He thought that anybody would, would, that would come and follow Jesus, but he persecuted the church. Look what it says in chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 6. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. He was literally arresting people that have decided to follow Jesus. Remember when I preached the other mo- week when I talked about if we really did baptisms uh, today, like they did back then, it would probably look a little different. Like we do it at like uh, like Ninth and Cumberland at the parking lot for the farmers market. Anybody remember me saying that? You know, uh, Aaron Aaron uh, Patches came to me Sunday and he said, you know. Uh, the youth group heard you say that, and we're going to have a baptismal service, and they insist that we do it at Ninth and Cumberland. <laughs> well, somebody was listening. I said, please tell me when. I want to be there. 
You know, holding up. Anyway, so, but, but that's the way it was. And when you follow Jesus, it could cost you your job and many times your life. And he persecuted the church. And he actually thought, he said this one time, he said, I actually thought at one time in my life that I thought by killing people to follow Jesus, I was doing God a favor. That's where he was. He had that in the plus column. He also voted to kill Stephen, not just one. I'm not that old. <laughs> you know, uh, someone asked me the other day what translation of the Bible I like. I said, I used the King James Version. It was good enough for the apostles, it was good enough for me. Some of you have no idea why that's funny. But, you know, the King James Bible came about a thousand years after Paul died. So anyway, anyway so, he, so, and, and so in uh, Acts chapter 26 and 10, when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. I weighed in. I was this big political religious figure that says, let's kill these people, let's arrest them. But I am a Pharisee, remember, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I don't want blood on my hands, but I'll okay it for you to do it. It's kind of like what they did to Jesus at the crucifixion, right? They wanted Rome to do for them what they could not do for themselves and still stay pure by the law's standard. He was also an accessory to a crime. They stoned him, which is Stephen again, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And uh, that basically meant, so he was not going to do it personally, but he was the religious big guy there. And one of the ways that the guys that were actually stoning Stephen would feel like they are justified and righteous in doing so, that if they laid their cloaks, their coats at the feet of the authority, and they would be okay with that, then, it, then, then they would be off the hook, so to speak. He also had authority to arrest believers. It says in Acts chapter 22 and 5, I received letters, went to Damascus to bring them which were bound into Jerusalem and to be punished. So he was wreaking havoc on the early church in Jerusalem. And he says, I'm kind of liking this work. And you know what? This thing called the way, and we're going to show you that in a moment. Uh, but they're going to show, they're, they called it the way, they didn't call it Christianity. Uh, uh, believers, followers were first called Christians many years later uh, at Antioch. And and so, but, but they, were, uh, they were called the followers of the way. John 14 and 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, right? So it's a good, good thing. Are you of the way? No, some of us are just in the way. We're not of the way. But, <laughs> but we, we are. So, so he uh, got authorities in Jerusalem, the higher ups, and the high priest and all those folks, to give him written documented permission to go north into a place called Damascus, which is now in present-day Syria, to do there what he was doing in Jerusalem. And by the way, that was on that journey from Jerusalem to Damascus where his caterpillar to butterfly moment takes place. And that's what we're going to look at next. Saul's conversion. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. We're just going to go through that whole passage. Uh, you can follow it on the screen if you would like. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats in every breath, uh, with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any, any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in change. All right? 
As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now this is so interesting, is it not? That Saul thinks he's persecuting religious wackos who have lost their spiritual minds, who have left following the teachings of, of, of Moses, so to speak, or the, or the rabbis, and the high priests of that day, and now they're following this resurrected, supposed resurrected Savior called Jesus, the Messiah, the Nazarene, right? He's thinking he's persecuting them, but Jesus takes it personal. Why are you persecuting me? You know, it kind of reminds me of what it says in the book of 1 Peter. So we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So there's that thing behind the scenes. You think you're persecuting Christians, but your ultimate gripe and grudge is with me, the people that they represent. And then he said, Paul said, Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, and the voice replied. Now he's hearing voices, right? I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now the men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but Saul no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. Now this is where God's gift is starting to become tiny. Mr. Big Shot, I had all those plus things in the column. All these things going for me. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision saying or calling, Ananias, yes, Lord, he replied. It's always good to say yes, Lord, when the Lord calls, right? <laughs> the Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas, and when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. Isn't that really cool? I mean, can you just, you know, we got a bird's eye view of how God works, right? Paul's praying over here. He's probably saying, what had just happened? I can't see. I heard voices. He lost his way. And God says, I hear him praying. I have shown him in a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about ter the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem, and he's authorized by the leading priest to arrest anyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hand on him and said, Brother Saul. Now remember, he's afraid of God. Because now he's calling him brother. Probably not feeling it quite yet, but he's, you know. You know, sometimes our actions need to lead our feelings, right? The Lord, appear, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized at Nathan Cumberland. No, not, probably not there. 
<laughs> Afterwards, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. Now, let's just really quick breeze through three things that happened here. First of all, he saw a blinding light. Suddenly, a light shone round about him from heaven, and he was three days without sight. Have you ever heard the phrase, man, I saw the light? Mm -hmm. Did you ever use that one? I saw the light. Now, uh, my wife and I have been in ministry for, uh, let's see, 42 years this coming July, and pastoring uh, all, but, all but four of those years. And, uh, and I can tell you, most people don't really get serious with God when they see the light. It's usually when they feel the heat. You know, that's just the way we are wired. Oh, yeah, the pretty lights. It's like we're watching a fireworks display on 4th of July. Oh, isn't that pretty? woo hoo <laughs> but man, when it's like, ow, it's hot, Ooh. all of a sudden it's like, I got to move. I got to do something. Then he heard a life-changing voice. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, there are many of you here that understand this, right? Uh, I know people who claim to have heard the audible voice of God, and because I know of their experience and they are reasonably mentally sound, unlike me. I believe them, but it's never been my experience. But I have heard God regardless. You know what that's like, right? I mean, you're reading a passage and it jumps off the page and hits you between the eyeballs. One you've read a hundred times before, but today God says, now's the day we're doing business with this. You couldn't handle it last year. Now we're dealing with it, right? And it's like, <laughs> here we go. And then thirdly, he was given an immediate command. Go into the city and you will be told what you must do. This is an initiation pattern. And when you become a Christian, it's not really that complicated up front. We talk about baptism. That's usually your first serious spiritual step in your journey. Get baptized. Oh, well, I got to wait for they start scheduling baptisms at LifeWaite. I'm going to do that, and that's cool, you know. But it's short term goals. And, and uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about this. I want to talk about embryonic pattern. It's a phrase that I kind of came up with in preparation for tonight. So here's what embryonic means embryonic simply means just starting to develop. And patter is a word that we don't use much anymore unless we talk about the pitter patter of little feet. I don't think that's what that means. Continuous and sometimes funny speech or talk. Ladies and gentlemen, when we are a baby Christian, that's where we all begin. With embryonic patter. You know, we are just starting to develop. Although we think we got it all figured out. And we got our minds made out about, about, up about so many things. And everybody else is dumber than a sack full of hammers. We got it all figured out. You know, and, 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 and we, we just... Patter on and on, continuous and sometimes funny speech and talk. I think about when I became a Christian, I was almost 25 years of age, and Nancy was four years older than me, so I married an older woman. You know, you know, there is no justice in life. I'm four years younger than her, and she looks 10 years younger than me. It just ain't right. God and I are going to have a conversation about that one day when I get there. Because <laughs> maybe in heaven she'll look 10 years older than me. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, you got to play the hand you're dealt, you know what I'm saying? 
when I think about May the 18th, 1975, that's the Sunday morning I surrendered my life to Christ and made my profession of faith in a little church in Lower Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And I'm just about 25 years of age. I'm not some little, you know, kid or anything. But I think back at how I talked and what I did uh, serving my pastor or the church. It's like, and it's like I mentioned in a sermon a couple weeks ago, I pastored me several times since then. And it wasn't fun. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, I'm like a little puppy running through the house with no purpose, banging off the walls and every once in a while leaving a mess, you know. And that's how we are. We start out with embryonic patter. Faithfulness in your first task is important. That's why we really stress the importance of getting baptized. If indeed is, you know, repent and be baptized. Jesus said it, not me. Because your ability to be faithful in the first and most simplest of tasks when you begin your journey will be indicative of how faithful you will be with greater things God has in store for you down the road. Jesus said it himself when he was telling his parables. He said, he that is faithful with little, I will make him ruler of much. Right? So as I kind of wrap up my part of the, the program tonight, I want to talk about quickly seven steps to a transformational encounter with Christ. All right? Here it is. Even those who deny and fight against Christ are transformed when they encounter Jesus. Paul is one of the most radical transformation stories you'll ever read about in the Bible, in the New Testament. It's not logic or emotions or personal gain that changes people. It's meeting Jesus. When he met him, he said, who are you, Lord? It's an interesting, right? The Jesus he's persecuting, the first words out of his mouth, when he gets knocked off of his donkey and he's blinded by a light and he hears a voice saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I know you're Lord. I just don't know which one. Who are you? Who are you, Lord? A personal relationship with Jesus will change you. He said, Lord, what will you have me to do? There's, there is an assumption that this kind of encounter is not just to make me feel good, and it's not just for my entertainment value. It's to radically change me and transform me for a purpose. What do you want me to do? Jesus personally calls us. Secondly, an encounter with Christ will change your life's direction. Immediately, listen, immediately Saul went to the synagogue to preach, not armed with the edict from the high priest in Jerusalem to put in chains Christians in Damascus and bring them back to Jerusalem to punish them. He's in the synagogue preaching that Jesus, Acts 9.20, is indeed the Son of God. Wow. Number three, many people around you may not understand what has happened to you when you encounter Jesus. I mean, that, that was my experience. We uh, showed you our wedding picture. There was a member of our bridal party, uh, husband and wife team. The wife was my wife's uh, matron of honor, and uh, he was one of my groomsmen. And when we first got saved, he came over and, 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 uh, and noticed that things were markedly different in our house and our demeanor and what we did in the name of fun, you know? And, and he just said, what the heck happened here? You're a bunch of Bible-thumping Billy Graham fanatics. Blah, blah, blah. And basically, there was a, you know, there was a big wedge that developed there. Not because we wanted. We wanted to love him anyway. 
we had a lot of history with him, but he just didn't accept the fact that we aren't the way we used to be. See, your encounter with Jesus is private. You shouldn't be concerned about what others think or how they respond. And when you are concerned about what others think and how they respond, it means that your, your experience is not really private. If it's going to rain on my social parade, then maybe I don't want to do this. Or maybe I'll find a way to be an undercover agent for Jesus. Double O seven 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 because that's God's number of perfection, right? <laughs> Number four, an encounter with Christ will take away your pride, motivating you to humble yourself. Acts 9 and 8, we read it earlier, Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. This guy that was the gift to the world, significant, power broker, a religious politician, is now being led around by the hand by people because he lost his sight. He had a new perspective at that moment, a new perspective of Christ, obviously. He would write later in the book that we know of as Galatians, the letter that he wrote we know as the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 20. You know what he said? He said, it is no longer I that liveth, but Christ that liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And let's not forget verse 21. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. He also received a new perspective of himself. Mr. Big Shot now says this in 1 Timothy 1.15. He said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of all. I mean, I don't know if you, if you get that, but here's the guy that, remember recording the righteousness that comes by the law? Perfect. I nailed it. If it was Olympics, I'd get a 10. No, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. From a rising religious politician to a persecuted follower of Christ. Wow. That's how radical it is. That's a caterpillar or butterfly story if I've ever read one. Right? In fact, think about all the stuff that I was like uh, metaphorically putting up on the plus side for him that he, that he one time in his life bragged about. Here's what he said about all that in summation in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. He said, yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. I've got plaques everywhere in my house. Most of them are packed in boxes. Some of them on the walls just because it looked kind of bare. Some up there. My ordination certificate from Lifeway is in my living room. That, that, that's something special to, to me. All the accolades. I, I have one plaque down in what used to be my office. My wife has taken it over as a craft room. Uh, well, she didn't take it over. I, I surrendered it. <laughs> Gladly, because <laughs> I wasn't really using it. And, uh, but there's a, there's a plaque on the wall that I got from Harrisburg when I was blessed to be chaplain of the state senate and, for the day and, and got to pray and, and uh, lay hands on the lieutenant governor who invited us back to our, her office. It was an amazing day. So there's a lot of memories. And, but you know what? 
I understand what Paul's saying. All that stuff, you can put it in a pile and burn it. And I'm not going to shed a lot of tears over that because it's really, compared to knowing Christ, it is all garbage. It has no eternal value. It's the stuff that we humans get hung up on. It's what matters so much to us of being recognized. And listen, I'm all for being recognized. The Bible says give honor to whom honors due, tribute to whom tributes is due. I get all that. But, but if you're banking your life, building your life solely on that stuff, you're missing it. You're missing it. Everything is garbage compared to knowing Christ. Here's number five. An encounter with Jesus will call you to a yielded life of dedication, sacrifice, and possible suffering. Don't want to hear that part, right? I'll show you a little video clip here, a couple minutes long. And uh, it's not the, you know, it's a little bit hokey, but I think it gets the, uh, the point across. This guy is kind of, kind of beginning his day, and, and you're reading his thoughts as he's going, pulling out of the driveway to go to work, stopping at the coffee shop on the way to, to work, and he's, you know, he's grumbling about this, that, and the other thing, and then all of a sudden this weird, you know, men in black, CIA-type guy comes in a coffee shop and gives him these special glasses, and now he's able to see people for who they really are and what they're going through, and it totally transforms his perspective. <coughs> we don't need to say, oh, man, it would be so cool to have a pair of glasses like that. Or you must be saying, keep those things away from me. But, but guess what? We have the, those of us that are followers of Christ, we have the Holy Spirit on the inside, and he's your glasses. He gives you the ability to see people the way he sees them. And it's called discernment. It's called insight. And that's part of your transformation process. And then look at the last two. When you have an encounter with Jesus, your coworkers and friends may turn against you. Even family members. I remember one of my, my first awareness of that one as a baby Christian in, in the mid-70s. Mid and there was a there was a Orthodox Jewish guy by the name of Nick Canto in our church that came to I don't know I think the pastor reached out to him at a funeral or something, and he came to our church and he got gloriously saved, but every time he went when he went home to tell his family that he is now a follower of Jesus, they all disowned him. Listen, they literally had a funeral and memorial service for him. He died in their eyes, and so his family, his wife, his kids, his mom, his dad, his brothers and sisters. They all disappeared. Remember, remember the message a few weeks, though none go with me, still I will follow. And then number seven, God will surround you with people. It's kind of like a, a replacement thing from the last one. God will surround you with people to help you after you encounter Jesus. That's what... That's what Young Adult Group is about. That's what Life Groups are about at Lifeway. That's what our Sunday celebrations are about. <clears throat> That's what we're all about. We're not, doing, we're not doing everything maybe that we could do. I don't know everything we're not doing that we should do, but I'm saying nobody's perfect. We don't have it all covered. But everything we do that behind that is to get you connected with Jesus and so they can prepare you to make an impact for the kingdom. And we are here to equip you. One of the things that ministers are called to do is that we are to equip the saints to do the work of serving. <clears throat> and there's people here Kyle and Brittany and many others here, you know, uh, Renee and Gary, all, there are many, many people here, even Mark, who's a member of this group, but one of the staff people here. We are here to, to develop you and give you encouragement. Don't suffer in silence. Don't carry stuff around. 
Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So if you would just uh, bow your heads with me for a moment as we close tonight. Before and after. Maybe some of you are ready for a radical transformation. Maybe some of you are ready to say yes. Now, one of the things I, I uh, started doing many, many years ago is not assuming that everybody in the audience is where they need to be spiritually, right? That's just a big mistake in my opinion. Uh, people can come to meetings like this and still have a disconnection with Jesus. And it doesn't make them less than us. It doesn't make them inferior in any way. It just makes them disconnected. And with your head bowed and eye closed today, you're ready for radical transformation. Maybe you feel like a caterpillar today. But right now, through a humble prayer, you can begin to spin your cocoon and quickly emerge as a glorious butterfly, having no resemblance whatsoever to your previous form of existence. Jesus is that kind of a radically changing God. If you're here tonight and you would just like to do that, I'm ready to say yes to Jesus. I'm ready for my transformation. I'm ready for my caterpillar to butterfly experience. I'm, really, I'm ready to have my own version of Paul's conversion. With your head bowed and eye closed, would you just slip your hand up and just say, Steve, that's me tonight. Pray for me. I see your hand. I see your hand. Are there others? Someone else? I see your hand. God bless you. I see you in the back row. Put it down now that I've seen it. There's three that count. Anyone else? Anyone else? Can we all stand together? We're going to do it like we do it at Lifeway on, on Sundays because I think it provides cover for people that, I don't know about you, but believe it or not, <laughs> I'm shy. My wife still swears to this day. When we, our eyes, so I moved, I moved uh, two doors down from her uh, next to the home that she uh, basically grew up in, and she would walk cross street from her 66 Chevelle. It wasn't why I was attracted to her. Well, maybe one. <laughs> maybe it had something to do with it, but, but not, it, wasn't, it wasn't the whole thing. <laughs> and, uh, and she to this day swears that I was stuck up. Amen. <laughs> and I'm here to tell you. God knows what's in my heart. Yeah, she, she's having a Holy Ghost revival back there. She, but, you know, so sometimes we get shy and timid. And it's like, who wants to stand out? A lot of, you know, obviously at some point I got over that. But, you know, uh, we understand that. So, and, and to provide cover for some of you, we're all going to just pray the prayer that uh, we want to help you to pray today for you three that have raised your hands so that you're ready to say yes. You're ready for radical transformation. You're ready to enter into something as a caterpillar and come out like a butterfly. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Are you ready? Everybody pray after me. Dear Lord, I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died for my sins on the cross. I believe he rose again on the third day. I repent of my sins and ask you to forgive me. And by faith, I receive the Lord Jesus as my Savior. You promised to save me. And I believe you. Because you are God. And you cannot lie. I believe right now that the Lord Jesus is my personal Savior. And that all my sins are forgiven. 
through His precious blood. Heavenly Father, fill me with Your Holy Spirit and empower me to live a transformed life for You. I thank You, Lord, for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's praise the Lord for those that prayed that prayer tonight.